Last week, Scott kicked off this series we're calling Bloodline, where we are, as we're moving towards Easter in a couple of weeks, we're walking through the lives of some very, very important people that are found in the family tree or the bloodline of Jesus in this tiny little book called the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. So a lot of you haven't read that yet, but it's the cover and about 200 pages in. It's only like three pages. It's this little bitty four chapter book. And, and what we're finding to be true several thousand years ago in, when this story that we're going to look at took place, and what we find to be true even right now, today in this room, the truth and the takeaways haven't changed. It's the same, all right? And here's what I mean by that. The same, the same truths or takeaways are these. Even when life and circumstances are hard and tough and confusing and feel downright just bad, my life is just bad, somewhere in there, flowing through those circumstances, you will find God doing and moving and acting and accomplishing some really, really important things, even in, especially when it feels like God's nowhere to be found. My life is really, really hard and it feels like God has left the building. Even then, and here's this truth, God is still near. He's right, he's right here whether you can feel him or not. And here's what God is doing. This is what Scott unpacked last week with us. God is doing something to keep his promise to save and redeem mankind because God is good and keeps his promises. That's the definition of faith, right? God is who he says he is and he'll keep every promise he made to me even when I don't, it doesn't make sense. I gotta believe that about God. The second thing is God is doing something very specific in some very specific, a person or a group of people's life to, to do something to take care of them as they go through their circumstances. Here it is, just like he promised even though they can't see him in the, in the middle of it. And we've all been places like that, right? And the third thing is that if, if we'll pay attention, God is, is teaching you something about himself very specifically about himself and what he has and what he is able to do in your life. Even if in the moment you think God's given up on you, you're gonna find out God's teaching you something really good about himself. See, everything that God did in the times and the bloodline leading up to Jesus and what he did on the cross for us 2,000 years ago and everything God has done for us since the cross up to this moment right now, it's all part of the same story, all, all part of the same flow, the same purpose, the same promise that, from God that I won't leave you, I will be near you, I will take care of you and I will redeem you. That's what we're gonna look at today. I'll do whatever I need to do at whatever it costs me to, provi to provide and protect you in this life and, and, and the way Jesus called this life, the, the kingdom of God flowing right into the next, the eternal one. Eternity starts now. The moment you lean your life against Jesus, it just goes on forever. And you might not see it. You might not see God. You might not understand it. You may not even like what's going on. But God is working all things together to accomplish something that one day you'll look back and go, God used that. God used, because he promised he would do that. And so we're going to continue. Last week we looked at a family going through one of those very confusing, this is hard, this is really, this doesn't make sense, this isn't fair, it's going through one of those circumstances. Any families gone through those? Like four of us. Ah, right, 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 right. It's just, it's just right. So I want to review really, really quick what Scott covered last week. Ruth chapter one, and then we're going to cover Ruth chapter two uh, today. But here's kind of the, the shortened version of this. A man named Elimelech moves his, his wife Naomi and his two sons out of Bethlehem. Heard of that story? Bethlehem, Beth, baby Jesus, there you go, anyway, so, so anyway, so they used to live in Bethlehem, and then there was a famine, and there was no food, so he packed up the family, and he moved to this place called Moab, because there was food over there, but Moab is a very, very, very bad place, but Moab, but, 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 but Elimelech is just doing his best, it probably wasn't a very wise decision, he just did the best he could, he packed up his family, and went to this, this other, other country, all right, now, here's a little game changer, once they get there, Elimelech dies, didn't see that coming, all right? So now uh, 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 Naomi and her two sons live in this country without, without a protector. But, so her sons grow up a little bit. They marry some local girls. And then, get this, right after their wedding, both sons die. 
just sucks to be in their family, right? I mean, this is a really, really, really hard, hard family, all right? So, so now you have Naomi, who's a widow. She has no husband and no sons to take care of her. And in this culture, that's kind of a death sentence. And she has two daughters-in-law who have no husbands to take care of them either. Three single ladies living in a foreign country with no, no, no protector at all. Now, as the years go by, Naomi hears that the famine has ended in Bethlehem. The Lord has provided food back in Bethlehem. So she decides, I'm going home. I'm moving back to Bethlehem. And on the way there, she looks at her two young daughters-in-law and says, you don't have to go with me. I release you. You can go back to your families. You're young. You can find some, uh, another man to marry you. You can have sons and, 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 and just go on home. I release you from, from your promise, all right? And one does. She goes back to her family. But the other one, Ruth, one of the daughters-in-law, she looks at Naomi and goes, no, no, no. Where you go, I'll go. Your family, we're family now. Your God will be my God. Nothing will ever separate us. I promise I'm going to stay with you. So Ruth and Naomi go back to Bethlehem. And when they get back to Bethlehem and they move back into town, the local people don't accept them. They look at them like they're traitors. Oh, Naomi, you bailed when it got hard, and now all the food's back. Here, here you come, and you bring this girl, girl with you. That's, that's just not fair. And so we pick up the story, or we left it off last week. Naomi's just pretty much done. She's just done with the whole thing, all right? As a matter of fact, when they, when they welcome her back in, she goes, don't call me Naomi. I changed my name. My name's Mara in Hebrew. That's bitter. Just call me bitter, because I am. I'm really, I'm really bitter. I'm angry. I'm angry at life. I'm, I'm really angry at God because she's convinced that God is against her. She sees no hope for her future. She's just bitter. And some of us sitting here going, that, that's, that's my story. And nobody can blame me. You're, you're probably right. Chapter one ends with this. It's harvest time back in Bethlehem, which is a clue that something's gonna happen, gonna change, because there have been 10 years of famine, no rain, no crops for 10 years, and Naomi and Ruth show up just as the first harvest of wheat is about to come in in a decade. And that's where we're gonna pick up this story. Chapter two, verse one. Here we go, it says this. Now Naomi, and I don't know why they're calling her that, her name's Bitter, all right, but anyway, so, so Bitter Woman, all right, had a, <laughs> that's not very nice, but that's her name, anyway, so all right, so now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, her husband, whose name was Boaz. Now we're going to take a time out here, give you a little history lesson, and all this will come together at the end, all right? Do you remember a couple weeks ago, I, I said, we're going to do our best to read the Bible differently from now on. We're gonna try to take off that 21st century raised in suburban America filter, stop projecting that onto the Bible, strip that away and ask good questions. What was really going on here? What was going on in their life? What was going on culturally? What were the rules and regulations of life, of marriage, of, of all the things going on? And let's actually try to find out what was really going on as we read the, the, the account of what's going on there in the story. And I'll give you an example of that. We looked at Jesus. Right, a couple weeks we look at Jesus. Jesus grew up like 2,000 years ago. That's a long time. Some of you are going like, like back when America was discovered? Before that, okay? I mean, a long time ago. And he, and he didn't grow up in, in, in a suburban culture like us. He grew up in a, in a tribal village, a little podunk village in the middle of nowhere. And that village was made up of his clan, made up of his relatives under a culture and a religion based on blood sacrifice. Meaning this, the law stated, religious law stated that the price, the cost, the wage of a sin, a crime, if you made a mistake, you're going to pay with blood. Like in the religious system that Jesus grew up in, if you sinned against God, you have to shed the life of an animal. I, 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 sinned, I broke one of the Ten Commandments. Got to kill a goat. Got to kill a sheep. Got to kill a cow. All right? That, that's why as you read the Bible, there are sheep everywhere. Why? A lot of sinners. All right? I mean, just, just look at this room. All right? And up in West, it's the same thing. How many sheep would it take to cover this room? Yeah, because I know some of you. 
Flocks and flocks is the answer, all right? So, so if you sin against God, you've got you to kill an animal because the way to sin is blood, all right? If you sin against another person, if you cause another person to bleed, they look back and go, I want blood. I want, I want blood. And if somebody, you know, caused you to bleed or hurt you or one of your family, you have the legal right to look back and go, I'm going to take blood from you. You killed mine, I'm going to kill yours. The culture and religious climate that Jesus grew up on in was one where life was measured and equated with blood. And bloodlines were everything. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus grew up in a patriarchal society, meaning it was about fathers and sons and grandfathers, and that's how everything was, was, was passed on. And it, but it fell on women. All right, so, so look at this. A man's life, his worth, the value of his name, his honor, his credibility was measured not by how much money he had in the bank. I mean, that, that meant something, but not, not by how many cows or sheep or acres of land that he owned, but by how many sons he was able to father so that to, to, to ensure that his name would go on. His bloodline would continue after he was dead. In other words, a man's hope or claim to immortality, the ability to live on after he physically died, was measured in bloodlines. So much so, this is going somewhere, right? So much so that if a man died before he fathered a son to continue his own name, his own bloodline, the religious tribal law required the closest male relative to step in, take his widow as his wife, and father a son in his relative's name. So if my brother died before he fathered a son, I would take my, my sister-in-law, marry her, father a son through her for my brother so that his, his, his name would, would, would live on, all right? And the man who steps in to ensure that his dead relative's bloodline continued to provide him an heir was called, ready? A redeemer. A redeemer. And in this situation, a kinsman redeemer, a family redeemer. Now, if you're a note taker, this is the important part because you're gonna remember it, all right? A kinsman redeemer protected the interests and needs of members of his clan and his extended family. Bloodline is everything. Kinsman redeemer, I'm gonna make sure the bloodline goes on. A kinsman redeemer made sure that a family member's land was, had, didn't have to be sold off outside of the family. Meaning this, if you went broke, if your business went broke or whatever, and you decide I'm gonna sell our farm in order to provide for my family, the kinsman redeemer would step in and go, no, 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 gotta keep it in the family. I'll buy it because someday you might have sons and they're gonna need this land. The kinsman redeemer made sure that, that they didn't end up with nothing. If a family member somehow ended up in slavery, either through war or, or debt they couldn't pay. Like back in this day, if, if you had a debt you couldn't pay, all right, you would sell yourself to, to, the, to the lender. You would sell yourself into slavery and work that off. But if after you know, a while you realize, I'm never going to work this off, the kinsman redeemer would come and he would buy you out of slavery and back into the family. So if you found out that Uncle Fred, you know, over in Nazareth, you ran up the credit card again or something like that and could not pay it off. You go, well, what's the cost? All right, get a bunch of cows together, go sheep, go, go right, and bring Uncle Fred home with you. You, kinsman, you. you bought him out of slavery and back into the family. And here's the big one. If a family member was killed by an enemy, the kinsman redeemer would not rest until he had avenged his relative's death right? And that's really, really dear to me, or really, really memorable to me, because like I said, I just got back from Africa a couple weeks ago, and we couldn't leave town and go out into the countryside because of that. Clan killings. Tribes and clans were going against each other. You killed my uncle 20 years ago, I'm going to kill your son. You killed my son yesterday, I'm going to kill your whole family. And the whole idea of, of, of blood for blood is, we're going to make this right. We're going to make this right. And what, what's it cost to make it right? Blood for blood, all right? And you can look at that and go, well, that's really barbaric. And that's really, really primitive. And I agree with you. I agree with you. That, that is the world Jesus grew up in, right? It's the world he grew up in. And if you want to get even more primitive, the story of Ruth that we're looking at today took place a 1,000 years before Jesus. So, so today's story, 3,000 years ago, even more primitive. 
But the truth that we find in the book of Ruth, the truth we find in the days of Jesus, and the truth we find that is still true today, it's the same. It hasn't changed. And here it is. The wage of sin is still death. Sin, there's going to be blood. And our only hope of being bought out of condemnation and the slavery of sin is if maybe, cross your fingers, a kinsman redeemer would step up and pay whatever redemption price it costs, blood, in order for us to be bought out of slavery and back into the family. Are you connecting the dots here? where this bloodline goes. See, that was true back then. That is true right now in this moment. It'll always be true. It'll always be true. And the story of Ruth is a short four-chapter kind of snapshot out of the bloodline of Jesus that continues on to us even today through faith in Jesus. Now, I'll be honest with you. You can read those four chapters. You can read them just 20 minutes maybe, all right? The, the, The name Jesus isn't even in the book of Ruth. But if you really, really think of it with this mindset that we just kind of explained, Jesus is all over this thing. He is all on, every, on every sentence, he's in every paragraph, he's in, he's in every verse. And here's what I mean. Here's what we're going to do today, all right? We're, we're going we're to look at the two main characters in here, Boaz and Ruth. And you're going to see what kind of man Boaz is and what kind of woman Ruth is. And here's the goal. Maybe we'll start to understand what kind of kinsman redeemer Jesus is for us. That's the goal today, all right? So let's get back to the story. We're gonna make it all the way through this chapter and then we're gonna eat lunch, right? So chapter two, verse one. Now Naomi, better woman, all right? Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, and I put this in there, Ruth translates friendship, pleasant to be around, not bitter. I'm just throwing that in there, that's free, all right? And Ruth, the Moabite, that's where she was from, said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, let me go to the field and glean, that means harvest, among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. I'm gonna go find a field, the farmer's gonna let me go and get some wheat, all right? So, and then we'll have something to eat. And so Naomi said to her daughter, go, my daughter. Now, time out again, right? We're gonna go back to this several times. I wanna go back to where we left off last week because this is really important. The last words that we hear from Naomi in chapter one were this, God hates me. God, God, has, God has made my life bitter. I, I'm empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. My life is hard. My life is un, unfair, all right? Which to be fair, her life was hard, right? Put yourself in here. Your husband died, then both your sons die. That's a bad life. That's a hard life. So, so we're not gonna be too hard on her, all right? But, and and, and she, she has a heartbreaking life, all right? And here's the other part of this. She has no idea what's gonna happen next. It hasn't been going well, Feels like probably, probably more of the same. And so chapter two begins with Naomi just sitting there in her house in her bitterness saying to anybody who'll listen, my life is hard, my life is unfair. Hey, 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 Ruth, we have no husbands, we have no sons, we have no jobs, we have no money, we have no food. We have no hope. You ever felt like that? You ever been there? And then Ruth speaks up. I got an idea. I'm gonna go find some food. I'm gonna find some food. See, see it, it's harvest time and the fields are full of workers all over Bethlehem bringing in barley wheat, wagons full of it, all right? I'll find some farmer who will let me go into their field and I'll follow along behind the harvesters and I'll pick up whatever they miss or they drop on the ground. I'll gather it up, bring it home and then we'll have something to eat. We'll eat scraps, okay? And Naomi's response was, go, fine, go, all right? So she goes. Verse three, it gets better. Here we go, right? So she, Ruth, so Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. And she happened to come, ooh, all right, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech, okay? Dramatic music, da-da-da, right? 
If this is a movie, this is like, oh, there's a twist there, right? She just happened to come to, and she doesn't know who Boaz is. She has no, no idea, you know, who he's related to, all right? Now, now here's the other thing, as we're, as we're reading Bible stories here, right? See, we have the luxury of looking at this thing like 3,000 years later. We know how it turns out, all right? And so a lot of times we'll read Bible stories and we'll look at it and go, oh, don't worry about it. It all works out, all right? See, see Ruth, listen, this, I know what's going to happen here, Ruth, all right? So you're going to meet Boaz and you're going to hook up later. You're going to have a baby. He's going to have a baby. He's going to have a baby. He's going to have a baby. Gonna have a baby. Then Jesus is going to be born. Then he's going to go to cross. And I get to go to heaven. Just work it out. You know I mean? We, we, we have such condescending faith sometimes like, it's okay. It's no big deal. Really? Really? It's easy for us. But Naomi and Ruth, you know, you know what this feels like? All you can see is the last 10 years, and it hasn't been good, right? All, suffering, no provider, no, no protector, nobody taking care of us, and right now, we don't even have any food. Again, put yourself in that place, right? How would you feel, right? You lost everything, you have nothing to eat, all right, and, and you're just sitting there, and you have no idea what's gonna happen in the next chapter. You don't, you're not even sure there's gonna be another chapter of your life, let alone five more minutes, all right? You have no idea. So Naomi's response is, I'm just gonna sit here and tell everybody who'll listen, God is mean, God is unfair, I mean, I'm gonna starve to death. Whenever I read Naomi, I hear Eeyore, Winnie the Pooh. Wonderful day, probably going to rain. Hey, Naomi, probably going to starve to death today, you know, probably going to die. I mean, that, that's just, everything is just like, ah, uh, all right? So that, that's, that's not very nice, but that's Naomi, all right? And Ruth's response is, or, or, how about this? In light of what's going on in our lives, let's figure something out. Let, let's figure out what we need to do next. Now, I know what we need to do, Eat. We, we, we need to eat. And our options are, all right, maybe we can over-spiritualize this whole thing. We just sit here in the living room and cross our fingers and pray or sing songs to God. Maybe he'll just drop some food down the chimney. All things are possible through God. Or how about this? Because I can, I'll go look for some food. That's what I'm going to do. So, so she does. And Eeyore's response, go, go. All right, so verse, verse four, I love this. And behold, and then that, that translates, and just then, da-da-da, Boaz comes from Bethlehem. So he, Boaz has been in town, he comes back to his farm. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And that's a spiritual greeting. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Here we go. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's that young Moabite woman who, who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She, she said, earlier this morning, she came and she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came. I said, yes. So, so she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short break. Right now, now, now hold on to that. Because apparently, back in chapter one, we find out that when Naomi and Ruth get back to Bethlehem, right, they're like the big topic of, of gossip, there she is. I cannot believe. You know? And who's that foreign girl with her and all that kind of, all right? So, so Boaz has heard the story. Boaz knows all about it. He just hadn't put a face with the story that he heard back in Bethlehem. But he's looking at her and, and he starts like, like oh, I, I know about this. I, I heard about this foreign woman who, who, who decided to stick with and take care of Naomi, her, her aging mother-in-law, and leave behind her own family, even though she didn't have to. And she chose to become part of Naomi's family and by, by, by blood, part of my family because we're from the same clan. And now I, I show up here in my field and Boaz is foreman, point, points at Ruth and goes, that's the woman they're talking about. That, that's her. That's that foreign woman that everybody's talking about. And Boaz starts doing math, connecting dots. That, that's the woman. That's the woman who had a really, really hard life and nobody would blame her for being bitter, but look at her. She's not. That, that's the same woman. That, 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 that's, a, that's the woman who could have quit 
And nobody would blame her. I mean, she had a hard life, but, but, but she didn't quit. Nobody would blame her for quitting, but she didn't. That's the woman who made a promise to her mother-in-law. And no matter how hard her life is, she stuck with her promise. That's the woman who asked permission to come and gather grain out of my field, even though she could have snuck in later and stolen it. That's the woman who's tough and a hard worker to provide for and protect her family, her mother-in-law and herself. That's, that's, that is an awesome woman. That's a good, good woman. So Boaz decides to find out more about what kind of woman this Ruth is. So he walks over to her. Verse 8. It gets better. All right. So then Boaz says to Ruth, and she has no idea who he is. All right. Boaz says to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean harvest in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Stay stay close to my, my, my servants. All right. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. So you don't have to go ask another farmer if you can go to his field. My field, just stay in my field, all right? Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? They're gonna take care of you. And when you are thirsty, go, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now, time out here, okay? Because we're trying to figure out this Boaz guy, all right? And what, what do we know about him? Or better yet, how about this? What kind of man is Boaz? What kind of man is Boaz? Because we're gonna connect some dots later, all right? So here's, here's what we know about Boaz. First, we know that Boaz is a farmer by trade, right? Everybody, with that, he, he grows wheat, barley wheat. He's a farmer, okay? Now let's do some math, all right? Boaz is a wheat farmer, and what has been going on for the last 10 years in Bethlehem? What's been going on? Famine. It hadn't rained, okay? All right, picture where you were 10 years ago. That's the last time it rained, Okay, so no rain, no, no, no crops, all right? So, so for the last decade, Boaz has had no crops and no money, no, no, no income, all right? But now the rains have come back. He planted wheat, it came up, and it is harvest time. Now, again, put yourself in this story. If you've been broke for the last 10 years and finally some crops and some money are coming your direction, what would most of us do in that, sec- in that circumstance? Right after we lost everything. And I, I know what I would do, all right? I, I, I would do whatever I have to do to make sure that no famine hits my family again, right? Hey, I learned my lesson. I, 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 will, I will hoard, I will save, I'll make sure that we don't drop one grain of wheat. I want it all for me just in case, all right? After 10 years of nothing, very few people are willing to share very much, honestly, right? Especially when some foreign girl walks into your field and goes, can I have some? Probably not. Right? I remember back in high school studying about the Great Depression that hit the United States. I remember talking about, to, my, to my grandparents about, about this before they passed away. And I remember hearing stories about how the generation that, that lived through that, 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 that depression, after it was over, they, they, they grabbed every dime nickel that they could find. Right? They saved everything that they could find. They, they stored money. You know, I remember hearing about when that generation started to, 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 to die off, they would go into their homes and they'd been living like paupers, right? And then they'd open up their mattress and there'd be thousands of dollars in there or under the floorboards. Why? Just in case. Just in case it goes south again. Just in case there's another depression, right? So, so and again, most people go, well, I, I understand that. But what does Boaz do? Shares. Why does he do that? Well, if you go all the way back to Leviticus, you know, he's a, he's a, he's, he's a man of faith. So, so in Jewish tribal culture and faith, God instructed his people, he, he commanded his people, whenever you harvest your field, you make sure and leave some behind, especially around the margins. Or you drop some, why? So, so, that, so that the poor, the marginalized, especially widows who have nobody looking out for them, orphans and foreigners, so they can come into your field and have something to eat. Why? So they can have some dignity. So you make sure you take care of people. Don't, it's not all, all my stuff for me. So here's the first thing we know about what kind of man Boaz is. Boaz is a 
generous man. Boaz is a generous man. He's the kind of man who shares his possessions with those in need, whose decisions are driven by his faith, and his faith drives his decisions when there's a famine and when there's plenty. Boaz is a faithful man. His faith drives his life. And maybe, and some of us have been in situations similar to this, all right? Maybe he looks back at the last 10 years of his life and remembers how hard and horrible it was, and then he sees somebody else, there's this woman going through the exact same famine in her life, and he goes, no, 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 no. No, I, I'm, on my watch, I'm going to take care of you. Some of you have gone through hard times in your life, and you see some other young woman or young man go through the exact same thing, some young family going through the same thing that you had to go through, and you went, I, no, I, I'll, I'll take care of you. Or so here's even a worse situation, right? Some of us, we went through a season of our life, and we needed somebody to help us, and they didn't. And we made a vow, a, pr- a promise, whatever, if I can get through this, God, if you'll take me through this, I'll help somebody. Maybe that's what's going on on here. I'm going to treat her the way I wished that I had been treated. Verse 1 simply says that Boaz is a worthy man. Which I translate that out of the Hebrew. It says this, Boaz was a mighty man of wealth. And the the words mighty and wealth have less to do with money in the bank and much more to do with Boaz is a brave man, a courageous man. And I love this. A man with God-provided strength who had a good name and was influential in the community. He's a good man. Second, Boaz tells, tells Ruth, you take as much grain as you can find. You stay close to, to, to the workers, and I'll make sure that nobody, nobody uh, assaults you, which is really common in this culture. Because see, not everybody's as good as Boaz. Sometimes they would let people and women to come into their field to harvest, but there's a cost. We're going to go to the barn first. And they would get raped before they were allowed to harvest food. Boaz says, no, 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 not my field. Not in my field. I'm going to make sure my men take care of you. So, what kind of man is Boaz? Boaz is the kind of man who provides and protects. Provides and protects. That's the definition of a word we've been hitting a lot. What is that the definition of? Provides and protects. Love. Love provides and protects. So, do the math. Boaz is a loving man. Right? A loving man. So, Boaz is the kind of man defined by these words so far. Faith, courage, love. He's a good man. And he's just met a, a woman who's the kind of woman defined by words like, Ruth is a pleasant woman. She's not bitter. Nobody would blame her for being bitter, but she's not. She's actually pleasant to be around. She has integrity. She doesn't lie. She doesn't steal. She's polite. She's tough. She's hardworking. She does whatever she has to do to provide for and protect, which is love her family. So here's where we are in case you dozed off. A really good man meets a really good woman, and that's a really good deal. That's a good story so far, but it gets better, all right? Verse 10, all right? Then she, Ruth, she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she said to to Boaz, why? Why have I found favor in your eyes? You should even take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner. In other words, what are you doing? I didn't come here to be noticed. I had no no expectations that you or anybody else should, should do anything for me, and I'm not even shopping for that. I know who I am. I'm a foreigner. I, I shouldn't even be here. I'm just trying to do the right thing. She's not saying, you know, no, don't give me any food or, or what's the catch. It's just starting to sink in. I just met you, and I think you just saved my life. Who are you? I, I've never met a man like, like, like you. I don't have a category for the kind of man that apparently you are. Why have you treated me like this? I didn't see this coming. What is going on? Who are you? Look at verse 11. But Boaz answered her. This is where we find out that, what he found out in Bethlehem. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and you came to a people that you did not know before, I heard all about you. 
The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by, here it is, the Lord, the God of Israel, not Moab, Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So here's something new we can find about what kind of woman Ruth is, or or the kind of woman she's become. Ruth is a faithful woman. She's a woman of faith. How do you know that? Well, earlier in chapter 1, Ruth told Naomi, I'll go where you go, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Now, Boaz just met this woman in a field. He calls it out. Ruth, it's obvious. I can see it. The Lord God of Israel really is your God. And you believe that, that you can take refuge, protection under his, under his arms, under his wings. You believe in spite of everything that's happened to you, God is protecting you right now. You don't believe in the God of Israel because Naomi did. I mean, she got you started, but no. Somewhere in the last season of your life, he's become your God. He's your God and you're here because you trust him to take care of you. And that's what he's doing right here in this field. Her response, I did not see that coming. Right? Verse 13. Then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me, spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. I don't even work for you, all right? Ruth still didn't have a category for this. I, I'm, I don't even, I'm not even one of your employees, all right? How do you, why are you doing this? I'm not your family. She, does, she has no idea of the connection, all right? I, I'm not your bloodline. I'm not from your village, your clan, your country. Yet you, you've helped me. You've spoken kindly to me. I, don't, I do not get it. Look at verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread. So first date, picnic in the field, all right? Right out there in the field. It's going to get good, all right? So at at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your your bread in, in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied, until she was full and she had some left over. Remember that. Verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and don't reproach her. So if she gets out in front of the harvesters and the good stuff, let her go. Let, let, her, let her go. Let her harvest the good stuff, all right? And also, this is over the top, also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and don't rebuke her. In other words, drop some good stuff in front of her, right? Here comes Ruth. Oh, I dropped some wheat, all right? So some of, you, some of you single guys ought to write this down. Oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to drop wheat in front of my girlfriend, right? So there. <laughs> who, who knows, all right? And, you know, and she picks up the good stuff. Let her. That's, this, this is, this is 3,000-year-old flirtation right here. This is, this is good, good, good stuff. Anyway, so, anyway, so verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the, in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. So she, she went to the, to the threshing floor and took all the seeds off the stems, all right? And it was about an ephah, about half a bushel, which is a big amount, all right, of barley. And she took it up and went into the city, Bethlehem. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also, here it is, she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. You catch that? See, this is the kind of woman Ruth is. Earlier when Boaz provided lunch for her, he gave her so much, that roasted grain, she ate till she couldn't eat anymore. But apparently she wrapped some up, put it in her purse. I'm taking that home to my mother-in-law, right? Who does that? What kind of woman remembers her old, bitter mother-in-law sitting at home feeling sorry for herself? There's more to that sentence, and don't point at anybody, all right? (laughs) Right there, all right, right, right? Don't look at your husband or your wife, all right, don't, all right, right? So who thinks of their old, mean mother-in-law sitting at home feeling sorry for herself and still makes sure that she has something to eat too? What kind of woman does that? A good one, right? Kind woman, thoughtful woman, rare woman, all right? Verse 19, and her mother-in-law, so Naomi said to her, where'd you glean today? Where'd you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Thank you, man who let you in his field. Here we go, all right? So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, da-da-da, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. 
right, lights and all that, right? And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, here's the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Yea, God. Huh? What, what? The last words we've heard from Naomi before she told Ruth, go get some food, fine, all right? The last words in the Bible from, from Naomi are, my life is bitter because God made my life hard. God has taken everything from me. And I don't have anything. I'm empty. God has afflicted me. God has treated me bad. God has done wrong things to me, and I'm broken, and it's God's fault. And now, like, like five verses later, like in one moment, her circumstances change a half a bushel of wheat worth of change, all right? And Naomi's response is, may the Lord bless Boaz and the Lord's kindness. He's so good. He's not forsaken me or my dead husband or he hasn't forgotten about my dead sons. God is so good. I love God so much. He's so loving and faithful and true. Yay, God. What kind of woman is Naomi? I say a woman needs Prozac. That's what I think. That's what kind of woman she is, all right? And don't write me an email. I can say that. I'm allowed to say that because everyone in my life is on Prozac and the only thing they have in common, me. All right? So <laughs> that's true. That's actually true. Everybody in my bloodline is on meds. All right? So, so but look at that. Is, that is a major mood swing, right? It's like, oh, we're going to die. We're going to die. Yay, 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 God. So why this big mood, mood swing? Why? Why is she so happy? Well, Naomi's about to drop a bomb on Ruth here. Naomi also said to her, that man, Boaz, is a close relative of ours, one of our kinsmen redeemers. And in that moment, Naomi has just a little bit of hope. Just a little bit of hope. Maybe Boaz. Maybe Boaz will do something good. Maybe Boaz will protect us. Maybe Boaz will protect or provide for us. Maybe, maybe, maybe Boaz will redeem us out of this pit that we fell in or we got pushed in or whatever, but there's no way out. Maybe Boaz. Ruth continues, all right? There's more, mom. Listen to the rest of this. And, and Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, that's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. I mean, it's very, very common. You stay with him, all right? Verse 23, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So I'm going to stop right there, cliffhanger, all right? We're going to pick the story up next week because it gets better. Da-da-da. It gets a lot, a lot better, all right? But here's what I want to do. Here's what we usually do with Bible stories, especially, let me just jump ahead to lo- next week, a spoiler alert, all right? Next week, this story goes into a scene that could, has the potential to, 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 to make 50 shades of gray look like nothing, okay? I mean, and I've never read it or seen it, and neither should you, but I'm just, I've heard, all right? So, <laughs> so this story could go really south really fast, depending on what Boaz and Ruth, who find themselves alone in a barn in the middle of the night, depending on how they go with this. And one of them says, whatever you want to do, all right? And some of you, I can watch you going, where's chapter three? I'm not waiting. I got to see this. It's good stuff, all right, right? So, so we're going to get to that next week, but not today. Okay, so what, what we usually do when we read stories in the Bible, and we see what, what, what the, the people in the Bible did or didn't do, here's what we usually do. We jump right to, so you're saying I have to do that? So you're saying, if I don't do that, that makes me a bad person. So Boaz did that. Is that what God expects me to do? I mean, is there a rule or a law about that? Is it a sin if I don't do that? So, so what's the takeaway of that? But I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't want to do that I, I, with this story. This week and next week, here's what I want to do. Just like Scott did last week when he ended asking questions about who are you based on what you've done in the past or what's been done to you. I want to kind of go along that same line. I want to ask you two questions. You know, first, let me kind of set up the two questions. As you heard the story of Ruth and Boaz, 
And what they chose to do up to this point, don't get to chapter three yet, but up to this point in their story, how they decided they were gonna live their lives. The first question I have would would be this. What kind of man or woman lives like that? What, What kind of man or woman does something like that? Here are the words that we've seen in review that describe the kind of man Boaz was that we get out of that one chapter. Apparently, Boaz is a man of faith. A man whose decisions are guided by his relationship with God. A man who loves, who provides and protects. A man who shares anything he has, even after he's gone through a famine. And the word that describes the kind of woman that Ruth is, is she's a woman of faith, who at first followed God because she loved Naomi, and Naomi followed God. But somewhere along the line, Ruth Ruth took ownership of her own faith and put her trust in God as her protector. And that's some of our stories. We, we started following Jesus, believing in Jesus, going to church because grandma drug us off or your mom and dad shoved it down our throat and stuff like that. And maybe we walked away for a while or something like that. But there came a point in our life saying, you know what, I got to figure out what I believe about God, about Jesus. And then there was a day in time where you go, thank you, mom. Thank you, grandma. Thank you, priest, whatever that is, my faith. I take ownership of my faith. And apparently somewhere Ruth says, no, he's my God now. Ruth was a woman who didn't quit in spite of hardship. And nobody would have blamed her, really. Right? She had a hard life. A tough woman, a hardworking woman, a woman who was pleasant to be around, right? A smart and practical woman who did whatever it took to provide for and protect, to love her family. So here's the questions that I want to leave you with. And the question is not, what would you have done if you were Ruth or what would you have done if you were Boaz in the same circumstance? No. Here's a question I want to answer you to answer for yourself over the next few days. What kind of man are you? What kind of woman are you? Right? Or, or let, me, let me rephrase that. What are the words that would describe the kind of man or woman that you are? What kind of man are you? What kind of woman? And here's why I ask that instead of the, the other thing. See, what, whatever you do or don't do in any situation you find yourself in, like right now, this afternoon, or, or any time between now and your funeral, whatever you do or don't do will be based on what kind of man or woman you are. Right? What you do or don't do in your circumstances will simply reveal what kind of man or woman you are when you went into that circumstance. I've heard it said this way. Circumstances don't build character. They simply reveal it. And you know what I'm talking about. Because there are people in your life and you thought you knew them. You thought you could trust them. And then the famine hit or the tragedy hit or whatever that hit. And you looked at them and went, oh, now, now, now I know what kind of man you are. Now I know what kind of woman I married. Now I know what kind of, you know, parents I have. Now I know what kind of friend you really are. Circumstances revealed that, right? So over these last next couple of minutes, I want you to answer these questions. In your own head, you can answer them out loud if you want, but some fill in the blanks are gonna be here on the screen. Here's the questions. What kind of man shares what he has regardless of how much he has? We're gonna answer that. A man who shares what he has regardless of how much he has is a what? Hey, men, what, what kind of man are you? Selfish man? Generous? What kind of man keeps what he has for himself? Answer that. A man who keeps what he has for himself is a man. What, what kind of man are you? Ladies, what, what, what kind of woman doesn't give up when times are bad and it feels like God has afflicted her and life and marriage and family? It's all unfair. And you don't know where your next meal is coming from. A woman who doesn't give up is a what woman? What kind of woman gives up? A woman who gives up is a... So what kind of woman are you? That's between you and God. What kind of man is it whose decisions are guided by his relationship with God? That man is a what man? What kind of woman believes God will give her refuge in hard times? A woman like that is a what woman? Does that describe you? Same word? 
What, what kind of man or woman provides and protects his or, her, his or her family no matter what it costs them personally to redeem them out of danger and into safety? Here, here it is. A man or woman who provides and protects their family is a what kind of man, kind of, kind of woman? And the flip side, and a man or woman who bails out on their family in order to provide and protect themselves and run after their own desires is a what kind of man or woman? I had a lady come with me in the lobby last night. She says, you just talked me out of abandoning my kids again. You know why? She thought she was a bad woman. And God reminded her she's good. She doesn't have to do that. She just gave up on herself. Through Christ, he reminded her, don't give up. So the question is this, what kind of man are you? What kind of woman are you? See, Scott ended his talk last week by reminding us that apart from God, like on our own, our past and our circum- current circumstances and the choices and decisions that, that we find ourselves in, our fault or somebody else's fault, do have the ability to tell us who we are and what we're worth. Because apart from God, on our own, without the blood, and read that bloodline of Christ covering us and coursing through our veins, our heart, our soul, our mind, and giving us the strength to follow him, I'll be honest, you're on your own. Without Christ, you're on, you're, you're on your own, right? You're at the mercy of whatever happens to you. But if we know who we are, and we know who Christ defines us and declares us to be, and we know what kind of man or woman that we're trying to be and become, then our circumstances have no ability to define or determine what we're going to do, no matter what the circumstance. What do you mean when famine hits your life, and you don't know where your next food, meal is coming from because there's no food in the house? I'm going to be okay. When our marriage ends before we thought it was going to end, either through death or divorce, when our hopes and dreams for ourselves or our families don't go in the direction that we always hoped and dreamed that they would go, when life says, you might as well give up because there's no hope, and it seems like there's nothing to do but sit down and and, and die and wait for death to come, we don't give up. Why? Because we know who we are. We know what kind of man we are, what kind of woman we are. See, see, before you can even start talking about what you need to change in your life, do different in your marriage, or, or, or what you hope or pray will change in your circumstances, and there's nothing wrong for, with praying that, that your circumstances will change, right? I do it all the time. None of those are bad, but let's, just be, let's be honest. First, before something changes out there in our marriage or our circumstances or our families or whatever, let's be honest. Something needs to change in the kind of man or woman that we are in here, Right? Something needs to change in here. In other words, as we trace this bloodline from Abraham through Ruth and right up to Jesus, let me make this really clear. God didn't do this whole Jesus thing to try to get you to act better. Cut back on the sin. Be nicer, all right? Treat people better. That's not why he did all he did, all right? No, Jesus came so that you can actually, ready, be better. I don't need to act better. I can keep that up for a while and then it falls apart. I need to be better. I need to become a better man. You need to become a, a, a better woman. And then whatever we do in any circumstance, any situation we find ourselves in, our, our fault, somebody else's fault, fair, not fair, doesn't matter. If we know who we are, then whatever we do will just flow out of it. Out of the overflow of our hearts, we live. And if I know what kind of man I am, I know what I'm going to do. You say, well, how is that possible? Well, on your own, it's impossible. But how about this? Remember this? Christ in you. All things are possible, right? Christ in you, that's your only hope. Christ in you, his blood covering you and flowing through you, that is our only hope of becoming the kind of person that sin and condemnation and mistakes and circumstances can't touch because we know who we are. I know what kind of man I am. Do you? What kind of woman you are? 
So let's end with the same question that Scott ended with last week, a question that Paul asked some Christians who were living in Rome and they were trying to connect these dots that didn't make sense. I hear God is good and I hear Jesus died for my sins and he'll take care of me, but they just nailed my dad to a cross. They just threw my family into, into, into jail. My kids just starved to death. We have to run to another country because we're being hunted simply because of our faith. We're trying to put good God and bad life together and have them both make sense. And so Paul throws this question out. What then shall we say to these things? God is good and life sucks. How do you put those things together? Here's the answer. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, on our side, he's near, Christ in us, and he's for us, who can be against us? Let's just say that together, that sentence. One, two, three. If God is for us, who can be against us? That'd be a great tattoo. Matter of time. I'm just telling you, right? (laughs) Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how how will he not also give with Jesus graciously, give us all things? Do the math. If God loves us that much, and you're in a pit right now, why do you think he's going to give up on you now? Because it feels bad. I know. I know. But God's for us. And he sent his son Jesus, our kinsman redeemer. Why? God did this not to change what we do, not to fix our marriage, but to change who we are, to change us into the kind of men and women we were meant to be. So what kind of man are you? What kind of woman are, are, are you? If you don't like that answer, how about this? Look at this. If God is for you and Christ is in you, What kind of person do you need and want to become? And is it possible? Well, through Christ, he says it is. Now, I'm done. We're going to pick up that. Great. Chapter 3 next week. Don't read it. That's going to make you read it. See, it's reverse psychology. Anyway, sorry, that's up. So we're going to stand up. We're going to sing an awesome song right now about what kind of God we have that we can actually say, you know, no matter what happens in my life, I trust that kind of a God. I'm going to press on. Stand up. I'll pray, and we'll worship together, all right? God, I love you so much. God, life is crazy. You know that. You look, down, you, you, you look at our lives. I mean, you're with us, you're near us, and you see the chaos of our life and how it just feels really, really painful and confusing. And then we get mad at you because it just doesn't make sense. But you're so good, God. You take our yelling and our screaming and our complaining and our cursing and telling you you're not a good God, and you're, you're just so good and patient. And you, just, you're just, you just stay near. And you wait for us to just turn towards you and say, will you help me? And in this moment right now, God, maybe there's a man or woman old, young, married, single, doesn't matter, turns toward you and say, God, will you redeem me? I feel like my life is in a pit right now. And I've cli- tried to climb out and I keep falling back in. It gets worse. Will you reach down into my life right now and make something good out of it? Will you redeem my life? That's our prayer. And the, the, the great thing is as we ask that, you've already promised the answer is yes. Will you just remind us of what, how good of a God you actually are? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.